Well, I too want to greet you on this Memorial Day weekend and uh, let you know how happy I am to be with you. And uh, our family was out uh, just driving around um, last night around Mill Valley, and uh, there must be a lot of people traveling because it's probably been 10 years since I've seen so few cars on our local streets. So if you needed to go anywhere, last night was the time to do it. Uh, if you missed your window, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you're here. And. Um, uh, Memorial Day weekend, um, what a joy it is to be together. And I wanted to begin today by uh, talking about uh, a man named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For many of you, he will need no introduction. Um, he was a, a great Christian saint in the first half of the 20th century. He was a pastor in Germany, a theologian, a seminary professor. He wrote uh, one of the more endearing uh, books in Christian literature called Life Together. And uh, what a, a great towering figure, um, so, but one that maybe many of you don't know a lot about. And so I want to share just a, a small sliver of his life and the way that God worked through his life uh, for uh, the benefit of the kingdom. Um, one of the things that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, as he grew up, was when uh, Nazism was growing uh, in uh, Germany after World War One, and uh, people were looking for um, new things to hold on to. And for about 20 years or so, uh, Nazism has been uh, growing and finally came to a high point in 1939 when uh, World War II broke out and uh, Hitler and the, uh, the German army began to um, expand, attempt to expand their kingdom. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had found himself for a time teaching internationally. He was in London for a time, teaching at a German uh, church there as a pastor. He had been invited to come to the United States, and he had done so. And uh, as World War II began to break out, and he was part of a movement of Christian believers who were working against uh, the ideals of, of Nazism. And uh, in 1939, he writes a letter to uh, an American theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, and here's a part of his letter. And the reason that I, I read this today is because, in part, he shares the hits on the two ideas, though he uses different words, of what I, I hope to bring out of the book of Esther for us today. Number one is a willingness to do that which God has called you to do. A willingness to do what God has called you to do. And then blending with that willingness is an action, a step of faith, a step of movement, so that willingness doesn't just stay in the, the realm of theory, but it actually becomes concrete as we take a step of faith to follow through on that which God has called us to. Here are just a, a few sentences of a letter that he wrote. He says, I have had time to think and to pray about my situation and that of my nation, and to have God's will for me clarified, I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people my brothers in the Confessing Synod wanted me to go to America. They, uh, they may have been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Such a decision each man must make for himself. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either the willing defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or 
willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. A willingness to follow as he understood God leading him, and that willingness being joined with action. Not passivity, but stepping into that which God had called him to. There are common causes that we all share that uh, we are tempted at times to allow fear to dominate the, our willingness and our ability to actually pursue the will of God in our lives. Sometimes fear takes a towering stance over us that we cannot move forward or choose not to move forward. Sometimes the challenge ahead of us might seem like an insurmountable mountain and we stand at the base of that mountain and whatever the challenge is ahead, it is too high and too grueling and we think that God cannot or will not equip us and empower us for the task ahead. Sometimes fear overwhelms us. Sometimes we fear that if I step up or if I speak up, then perhaps, uh, especially for the things of God, then perhaps what is going to be the response? And what if I'm rejected by others? And what if? What if? What if? And so we can allow fear of other people to undermine that which God wants us to do. And then there are times when we feel just simply insecure. We're not sure. We, we sense God prompting us and moving us this way, but we're not sure really that God will actually come and equip us for the task ahead. And so we allow fear to overwhelm uh, what God would want to do in our life. Fear is a real, very real barrier for us in moving forward with God. But one of my heroes of the faith, Esther, uh, she shows us today how we can be relieved from the fear to act. When we stand at the precipice, when a decision is called for, both a willingness to follow God that's blended with action to pursue Him, when that is called for, Esther helps us this morning to be relieved from the fear that we can sometimes have that prevents us from acting. You'll remember the story of Esther, just by way of recap, for those who may be visiting today. But Esther takes place about 2,500 years ago. It's in the kingdom of Persia. Persia, at this point, is the largest kingdom the world has ever known. Stretches from Africa all the way to Asia. And uh, Cyrus and Darius, kings before Xerxes, had, had conquered lands and peoples and had expanded the kingdom. And now it's been placed into the hands of Xerxes as king. Xerxes, as the pages of the book opens, remember that Esther is just one continual story and event of uh, what took place in this, this city of Susa in the midst of uh, the Persian Empire. King Xerxes had taken his wife and queen Vashti and he had set her aside. And this whole uh, episode comes about of, trying, of seeking to find a replacement queen. And uh, unexpectedly, Esther, who's not from the appropriate families, at least from custom's sake, Esther is chosen as the next queen for Xerxes. Uh, she is told, she, she grew up as an orphan. She's told by her cousin Mordecai, who raised her, that she shouldn't tell anybody that she's a Jewish woman. And we're not quite sure at the beginning why this is told, but two times Mordecai says, don't reveal your identity. And she, wanting to honor Mordecai as a father figure to her, she obeys. And so she doesn't. So Esther now becomes queen to King Xerxes, 
And uh, Mordecai has become a high-ranking official uh, in, in the government. And Mordecai uncovers an assassination plot that was afoot and reports it. And King Xerxes' life is saved. And any good king wants to thank the people who save your life. So eventually in the story, Mordecai is honored and thanked by King Xerxes, right? That's a good, good idea if you're a leader. Somebody saves your, saves your life, you should thank them. That's just a tip for life, okay? Just, just a common courtesy. Thank the people who save your life. So uh, Mordecai is honored and Haman is the villain of the story. Haman, he's, he comes from the lineage of the people the, the group that first meet the Israelites as they're exiting Egypt. And Haman is a descendant of those people. And, and in some ways, he's a picture of everything that would want to stand in the way of God's purposes moving forward. And Haman, he cannot stand Mordecai. Because Mordecai is the only person who wouldn't honor Haman like everyone else had been instructed to do. Mordecai just refused to do it. And so Haman... Being the good guy that he was, he decided he wanted to get rid of Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. He wanted to get rid of all of the Jewish people throughout the entire empire. And he convinces King Xerxes to pass a law to make it so. Well, Mordecai then comes to Esther through a messenger. And you'll remember this, what we focused on last week, was this conversation that takes place between Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai informs Esther of what's happening. Esther has no idea. Mordecai says, Esther, you as queen are in a position at this moment so that you might go and petition for your people. And Esther's reply, you might remember, was, I can't go before the king. In fact, there's a law. It's not a policy. It's not a good idea, a common courtesy. There is a law in place that if someone comes before the king without first being invited, that they invite their own death and doom. Not only that, but King Xerxes, Esther says, hasn't called me for 30 days. So not only should I not go, but King Xerxes has lost interest in me. So I'm doubly vexed in the thought of trying to come before the king. But she says, let's call the people together for three days. Let's pray and let's fast. And at the end of those three days, I will go before the king. You remember last week? And if I perish, what does she say? I perish. If I die in doing this, then so be it. If this is God's will for me, then there's no safer or better place for me to be, even if it causes my death, than to be in the middle of God's will. Did you know God's will isn't always what will bring your health and safety? Did you know that? Mission people, Christian brothers and sisters around the world today suffer persecution. And some of them die because of their faith, simply because they want to gather together and worship Jesus and to walk in faithful following after Him. Sometimes the very consequence of our faith can lead to our death. But you know what? Our calling as followers of Christ is this. That we, like Esther, will say, I will be obedient to God, and whatever the consequences, I will trust those to God, because my life is His. I am not my own, I have been bought at a price, so I will trust and I will follow, regardless of where the path leads. God calls you and me to faithful living. And so Esther does so. She goes, and our focus today is that she goes before the king. We're going to focus on that in a minute. And afterwards, King Xerxes allows her to come, and uh, she sets up this great plan, and uh, she reveals who she is, and who Haman is, and the plot afoot, and, and everything that Haman had set up, 
gets reversed, and it's just an amazing turn of events, just the way Jesus does in our life. He turns what was intended for evil and makes it good uh, for His kingdom and His purpose. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5? We're going to read just seven verses today. And then we're going to look at these two ideas and these two attitudes and uh, actions, one of willingness and her, uh, her ability to act and to move. Uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, at the end of chapter 4, uh, remember Esther has told Mordecai to gather all the Jewish people in the city of Susa and to fast for three days. And so they've been doing that. And at the end of those three days, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. That's when you hold your breath. He was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. Esther replied, If it pleases the king, let the king come together with Haman today to a banquet I have prepared for him. King, the king said, Bring Haman at once so that what uh, we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were uh, drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you up to half the kingdom. What is your request? And in verse 7, Esther replied, My petition, my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition... And to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. We're going to pause there for this moment and uh, continue to, to think through the idea that, that fear for Esther was very real, right? She was putting literally her neck and her life on the line to follow through with this uh, direction for her. Uh, it was a terrifying reality. But Esther is one who points out a willingness above and beyond all things to follow God no matter what the consequences. Part of her willingness, I think, is uh, developed out of the, the rise of courage in her. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to think about courage as being that which, uh, if you're filled with fear, if you're going to move forward in spite of fear, you need to somehow tap your heel, uh, put a hole in your heel and let the fear drain out of you and somehow replace the fear with some sort of strength, some sort of courage so that fear was completely gone. And as I've grown older and probably faced a lot more in my life, I've realized, and I agree with other people who define courage a lot better than I used to, that courage is not the absence of fear. But courage is the will to move forward in spite of of your fear. Soldiers know it. Athletes know it. Uh, people who uh, have big business presentations know it. Uh, it's the ability and the will to move forward in spite of fear. Where did this courage come from for Esther? We know partly it came from others. We looked last week at, at why it's so important for us when crises come to life that we have a church family and brothers and sisters that are spiritually rooted and connected to us so that we can share crisis together. 
Right? Crisis management in our life was never intended by God for us to simply draw a circle around myself and to walk through it by myself. That was never God's intent for kingdom people and Jesus-loving people. He puts us together on purpose so that we might share His purpose together. And part of that purpose is supporting each other in the midst of crisis. We've heard it already, the the verse of Galatians chapter 6, we are to bear one another's burdens. When the church in Thessalonica was was concerned about uh, if Jesus comes back and other people who have died before us and we're still living, uh, what's going to happen? And uh, do these others who have already died, what might happen to them? And the Apostle Paul gives them a, a great word of encouragement. And then what he tells them to do is to take this word that you've been given now in the Bible and to go and encourage each other with it. You see, Esther found her willingness because in others she was encouraged. She found strength. Encouragement literally means to come beside and to to lift somebody up, to provide strength where they are weak. And Esther found courage so that she might be willing, and part of that was through the gift of other people. And of course, God provided strength. When it talks about fasting here, I think it's implicit that there is prayer for three days. They were seeking God together, and certainly she found her courage in God as she was carried in His grace and strength. So there's a willingness that Esther demonstrates, a willingness to follow the will of God regardless of the consequences. Uh, So courage was a part of that willingness. A second part of that willingness was an ability to be self-sacrificial, a call to self-sacrifice. Esther understands that in her position at this time as queen, she knows that this is a moment that God has presented by His guiding hand. Self-sacrifice, perhaps no better time of the year to think about the ability of people to be self-sacrificial than on Memorial Day. I was reminded of a letter this week that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, was attributed to writing to a woman named Mrs. Bixby. Mrs. Bixby, back during the Civil War, she was believed to have lost five sons uh, in the conflict of the Civil War. And uh, Abraham Lincoln was uh, uh, told about it and writes this letter to her. And uh, it's so great. He says, Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save." I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. We know, especially at this time of the year, the power of sacrifice. And there are times in life when we are called to sacrifice ourselves. God calls each of us to self-sacrifice, not necessarily on the field of battle, but in full compliance with His desires in His kingdom as Him, as our King. The Bible gives us so many examples. You remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, on that first Christmas when the angel arrives at her doorstep? 
You remember he... I mean, he was talking crazy. He was saying, Mary, I want to tell you what's about to happen. Right? The Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to overshadow you. And the power of the Almighty is going to come upon you. And you're going to conceive a child, a son, and goes on to explain. You know, Mary's response was like, well, how can this be? Because I've never been with a man. And uh, the angel describes how it's going to happen. And you know what her response is and why Mary becomes such a great hero of faith? It's not because of her uh, imperfect life. No, no, no. It's because of her simple willingness. Her response is this. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me, God, as you desire for me. We could go on down the list. We could talk about Paul and all the the struggles that he went through to fulfill the calling. And on down the list, we might go for examples. But we have one right here in Esther. A life that was willing to sacrifice herself for the purposes of God. You see, in Esther, there's a willingness to follow the will of God above all else. And then the second thing and final thing today is that she took initiative, that she didn't sit passively by as things of critical importance were called out of her because of her position, because of the opportunity afforded to her, and because of the, the timing of all of this together. She was one who took the, the willingness and blended it with action. Could you imagine, uh, since it's Memorial Day, could you imagine a general on the field of battle or the, the person out actually... Uh, roaring up the troops and giving them that rousing speech and ready to turn to battle. And you imagine everybody going to bed and nobody waking up in the morning for the battle and they just stay in the bed because they're cozy. Uh, some of you probably remember the movie Rocky, the original Rocky movie. How many of you remember that movie? You've seen it? Only about half of Oh, okay. All right, about three quarters of us. Uh, it's the original like sports boxing movie. It was classic. Won three uh, Academy Awards, if you can believe that. It did. Um, the, the climax of the story, though, you remember Rocky Balboa, played by Sylvester Stallone, was, um, his nickname was the Italian Stallion, and he was kind of a down-and-out boxer. He'd really found uh, more of an income uh, working as an enforcer for the local loan shark. and uh, He, he kind of boxed and exercised at the local gym. Mickey owned the gym, and Mickey had once had some dreams of boxing himself and had done so, but never quite got the opportunities. And Then uh, Mickey kicks him out of the gym. He actually gives Rocky's locker to somebody else and says, Rocky, you're a bum. You know, get out of here. I wish I could do Mickey's accent. It's so, it's so quintessential Hollywood. I'm terrible with accents, by the way. I just, I have my own. That's all I have. <laughs> but he says, Rocky, get out of here. They, so Mickey kind of severs the relationship. And then all of a sudden, Apollo Creed, the champion of the world, he starts looking for someone to replace um, the, the opponent he was going to face. It's actually based on a true story. I didn't know if you knew that. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago. Uh, so go look it up. It's pretty. The real story is actually kind of interesting. Um, very interesting, I should say. But uh, Apollo Creed says, I, I want this guy because basically I like his nickname, the Italian Stallion. So they, they set up this, this arrangement and Mickey and, and uh, Rocky had split and Rocky's in his apartment and guess who comes knocking at the door? But Mickey's there and Mickey makes that long climb up the steps and they have this argument and uh, Rocky's like, you weren't there when I needed you and now when I need you, you're kind of coming around and they're both upset with themselves and with the, the reality of the circumstances and Mickey walks out of that apartment and starts walking down the sidewalk of the street. Rocky, you can hear him in the apartment yelling because he's so upset. Everything's unfair. 
And finally, he realizes that he needs Mickey as much as Mickey had realized that he needed Rocky. And he comes running down the stairs, he comes out, and their relationship is reformed. And that's when the training begins, right? That, for me, is the best part now. Because you have what seems like endless minutes of sweat and gruel and pain so that there can be gain. And they start going through all this stuff. And at the end of that training, you remember that iconic Hollywood scene when he finally chugs up the steps of the Philadelphia, I think it's the Museum of Art. I I could care less what the building was. But the camera angle is at the bottom of the stairs. And it's, it's a crescendo. It's the climax of all of the struggle. And now they've come to the top and they're ready for the fight. And uh, that starts off the whole Rocky sequence of movies. But could you imagine, had they, they not come to this place of both being willing together and then taking concrete steps of action forward. You'd never have that iconic scene. You'd never have an Academy Award winning film and we wouldn't be talking about it today. You see, there's a difference between being willing to do something and then doing what needs to happen in the next steps to actually follow through. Taking the step of faith. It's a step of faith that moves us forward. You see, faith leads to action. A life, a life like yours and mine, that's been steeped like a tea bag in hot water. You steep the bag and it lets the, the tea diffuse into the water. That tea bag gets swallowed up in that water. And the tea bag gets lost in that water. And, and its best comes out in the water. So a life like yours and mine, when we are steeped in God and when we're steeped in prayer, it always turns us to take a step of faith. When we are steeped in prayer and in the presence of God in our life in a continual way, it always leads us then to take a step of action, to take a step that that helps make our faith more concrete and even more real so that we can be part of God's work in the world. That's what God desires for your life individually and for our life corporately. Esther... She builds this mystery. I I love the way she goes about this. Esther is really smart. If you go back and just read how she interacted with people, people were charmed by her. And it wasn't just because she was a beautiful person. I think she she had smarts and she had a way with people. Uh, It's just amazing. And so she comes up with a a great plan. She invites, when she goes before the king, I don't want to forget, this is my last day to use my scepter. (laughs) That's right, she stands before the king and King Xerxes invites her in, and is he going to lower the the scepter to her or not? And yeah, he does. And she comes and she touches it, right? And then they they go on, and uh, Esther, uh, he says, what what can I do for you, Esther? And uh, she says, come, would you come, king? You and Haman, won't you come to this banquet I've prepared for you? Actually, it's already prepared. It's kind of right next door. (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, how can you say no, right? I mean, he could have, but... Boy, he was willing to do what she wanted. They come, and probably the practice of their meal was to eat together, had conversation. Now they're reclining. They're sort of in their comfortable chairs. They're having some wine. What a great moment for the question to come back up. Esther, what what is it that you want? Well, I'm glad you asked, King. In fact, it's so important. Would you come back to another banquet I'd like to prepare for you and Haman tomorrow? Can you imagine? Hmm. Can you imagine Xerxes? What is this? Okay, I'll come back. (laughs) Isn't that great? I just I love the way she went about this and probably got them in a quieter spot away from the other uh, t- uh, uh, staff and as many people around the edges and took them in. And if you want to read, we don't have time today, but if you want to go back and read, read chapter 5 and chapter 7. 
chapter 7, right after uh, these first seven verses of chapter 5. Because you pick up the story of the second banquet, and that's when uh, King Xerxes asks again, Esther, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, that's when she finally reveals that she's a Jewish woman. And she says, you remember that law you passed that Haman asked you to... Well, she doesn't say quite this way. It's much better the way it says there, but I'm trying to truncate things here. She says, you know, this, this edict that has gone out that's going to wipe out the Jews across your kingdom, well, guess what? I'm Jewish. And guess who's going to be caught up in that net? Me. And Xerxes' response is, well, who would do such a thing? And anyway, go, go back and read the story. It's really great. And, and then the, the great reversals begin to happen. Uh, Haman had built this, this execution device to put Mordecai on. And guess who ends up on that execution device? Haman. And Haman's own household and all of his goods, guess who ends up possessing and owning those as a gift from the king? Mordecai. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing irony in a turn of events. Uh, go back, if you haven't read it, go back and read or read it this week. It's amazing. My, my question for you, and the one I've been asking myself this week, is, is about those two words of a willingness to follow God, to be obedient to God, regardless of the circumstances, and at the same time blending that a willingness with action. And not just leaving willingness in this sort of nice, comfortable, theoretical place, but actually joining it with action and letting our lives be a blend of the two, just like I think we see in Esther, willingness and action for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, that is our prayer this morning, is that you would help instruct us in these things. We thank you for the story and life of Esther. We thank you for the way that you moved in Esther's life, the way you worked with her as an instrument of your good in the world. God, that is part of our desire today and our longing is to be the instruments in your hands for your good and for your glory to be known so that you might become famous in more places around the world this day and then tomorrow and next month and next year. God, help us to be willing people. And we know it's easy to talk about being willing, but when action is called for, help us to not shrink back because of fear. Help us to not stand at the base of the mountain and the, the mountain is so tall it feels insurmountable and we don't think you can help us over it. And help us not to be so fearful of other people's responses or opinions of us that we cannot stand confidently and joyfully as your ambassadors in our schools and in our neighborhoods. Help us to have an answer and a response with gentleness and respect, God. Help us with that. Help us, Lord, to, to not shrink away when the moment arises and you call us to action. Help us to be willing people, quick to serve, obedient to the end. We pray it in Jesus' name together. Amen.